Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. You know how in life it's often helpful to not admit to yourself what you're doing? Any of you know what I'm talking about? If there's a big job in front of you, you just sort of look the other way and begin the work and hope that it gets done quicker than you think it will. And uh, so we are not beginning on the, cha- uh, on the book of Romans. <laughs> We're just going to start up where we left off a couple weeks ago, and we'll see how it goes. And if we peter out at some point, don't get angry. But you know, you ought to preach Romans sometime. And Romans is a good book. Do you, do you find that true, that Romans is a good book? Anybody like Romans? Okay. All right. Well, we're not starting yet. But we might. All right. Romans chapter 1, beginning with verse 8. This is the word of God. It's eternally true. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers making requests, if perhaps now at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established, that is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far, so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, you are our only hope in life and in death. And once again this week, we come to you to be fed from your word. We pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of every heart here will be acceptable in thy sight, you who are our strength and our redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Don't even worry about problems with the sound system. This is what Jonathan does every week that we don't realize. And so it's so sweet to realize how well he does his work that we never realize that he's doing his work. So um, thank you, men, for, for stepping in. Our text begins with the word first. But this first is not opposed to second, because if you keep reading in the text, there is no second. And so the word first here means principally or primarily or the most important thing for you to get. So what is emphasized by the use of the word first here? First, I thank. Now this is something that we need to note very carefully because many of us don't know how wicked it is of us that we have no thankfulness. 
If I were to describe the, one of the besetting sins of our culture today, it is an utter lack of any thankfulness. Everybody is so focused on how they've been done wrong and how their mama did them wrong and their papa did them wrong and their next door neighbor done them wrong and how they don't get the love they need and, and you know, and it on. And it's almost as if, you know, anybody in a position of authority today just spends their entire life hearing complaints about how other authorities have done people wrong. And what that is, is a lack of gratitude. And, you know, as you get older and, and, and you've been that way when you're young and you begin to be the authority with children, all of a sudden you realize, whoa, this is hard work. And then you don't judge your parents quite so severely. I had this experience when my father would go out speaking all the time, and because he'd written a book on death and it had a number of children's die, children die, um, he, he would always speak on death. And he'd speak to nurses and doctors who were dealing with death constantly. And then the parents would come up whose children were dying, and they'd cry with him, and my dad would cry. And, and so when my dad got home from his trips... And he'd, he'd get home from work, and he'd sit in his easy chair. I'd come in the house, and I'd say, hey, Dad, how was your day? Good, Tim. How was yours? I said, good, Dad. Mm-hmm. And that was it, day after day. Hey, Tim, how was your day? Good, Dad. How was yours? Good. And I, I used to, you know, I, I tried to break the rules once or twice, you know. No, Dad, really, how was your day? It was good, Tim. How was yours? <laughs> you know? No, really, Dad. And then I went into the ministry, and I came home, and my son would say, hey, Dad, how was your day? And I'd say, good, Joseph, how was yours? And all of a sudden, I realized that when my dad was sat in that chair coming home from speaking, that he was utterly exhausted emotionally. And he just didn't have anything in him to give to his son. And that's not his fault. That's the fruit of him being a faithful servant to the church. And so... We make demands of everybody in our lives, and we are not grateful. I should have been grateful that my father was available to parents who were suffering. But instead, I was, you know, I was focused on myself and what I needed and what I thought was right for me. And so the Apostle Paul shows us how a Christian man, a sinner, he's a sinner, how a Christian man would begin the business part of a letter after you know, the formalities at the beginning. He says, I thank. Now, who does he thank? Well, he says, I thank my God. Very personal expression. He doesn't use this often. It's, it's him clomping on the maker of the universe as my God. My God. Very, very tender statement from the Apostle Paul. And he doesn't think that he's being presumptuous to say it. And we don't think he's being presumptuous either, because his God is our God. Whom have I in heaven but you? And aside from you, I desire nothing. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is my, my what? My portion. Whom have I in heaven but you? He says, I thank my, my God, through Jesus Christ. Why Jesus Christ? Well, because how do you approach God? God's holy. We don't dare to come into the presence of God, except that his son interposed himself between us and his father. 
And now we can boldly enter the throne of grace because Jesus Christ sits at the right hand of his Father, ever interceding for us. I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all. So I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all. Listen, that's never what I would say, and it's never what any pastor today would say. What would we say? We'd say, I'm, I'm so thankful for you. You're so wonderful. You just make my heart beat fast. I just love your generosity. I just love being your pastor. You're so wonderful. You know what that's called? It's called flattery. And it's a mark of a false shepherd. And the Apostle Paul is not a false shepherd. The Apostle Paul says he thanks God. Yeah, he thanks God for them, some of them. You know, if pastors were honest, <laughs> you know, I'm th- you've got to stop coming. Every time, you know, I always, those of you that don't know me, I live in the brains of people I know here, and I preach to them, right? And Rich, we have, we have a man who's a pastor his whole life, sitting on the second row, what, what? And I'm not thankful for you, don't worry. <laughs> you know, I think if I were to say this, what I would say, I, I, thank, I thank God for some of you. <laughs> You know, but the Apostle Paul says for all, all. Listen, the Apostle Paul has such a generous spirit. You know, I was thinking this morning, if I get to meet him someday, by God's grace in heaven, I'll be scared of him. But I'll love him. I don't know many people in the Bible that I would say that about. Um, I don't think I'd be afraid of Samson. But Paul? You know, you'd feel completely like a wastrel. And yet, you have to love him. Because he just never flatters you. Yesterday, I had one of the men in the church come up to me, and he, he was very earnest. And he looked in my eyes deeply. And he said to me, Tim, I want to talk to you. And so it's like, okay. And he looked in my eyes, and he said, you know, you know what I appreciate about you? And I said, no, what? You know, and it's like, uh-oh. You know, what's it going to be? You know, in other words, you're always braced as a pastor for, you know, a side-hand compliment that causes more pain than joy, you know. (laughs) And he looked at me and he said, I'm grateful that you judge me. He said, every time you listen to me, I can see you judging me. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) I said, no, 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 I don't. No, 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 you do, and I'm grateful. You're always examining me. Well, okay, all right. But imagine the Apostle Paul. I mean, that guy was improving everybody. Don't some of you husbands get sick and tired of your wives improving you? The Apostle Paul never stops improving everyone because that's his gift, you know? My gift is to improve you, (laughs) you know? 
The Apostle Paul is very generous, though. He's not punitive. He's not uh, fault-finding. You know, there's a difference between somebody who specializes in finding your faults and somebody who specializes in helping your weaknesses. And you who are fathers and mothers, you need to learn the difference between those two. It always needs to be evident to your children that you are improving them for their good, not that you're finding fault for your censoriousness. Okay? I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because... So the Apostle Paul is thanking God for all the Christians in the church in Rome, and here's the reason, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. Now, we must never forget that our faith is not how we earn God's approval. That's the danger of being a Protestant today. We've had it hounded on us that we're to pray the sinner's prayer, that we're asked Jesus into our heart, that we receive Jesus, all these, these words that indicate our activity, and none of them are wrong. But we, we become convinced that these are acts that we can accomplish on our own. And so then you read in Scripture where Jesus says that you're, the work that pleases his Father is that you believe in his Son, and you say, all right, I need to believe in Jesus. And then you find him faulting the disciples all the time for not having faith, and you find him faulting them for being little faith. Oh, you have little faith, and he's rebuking them. And so you can easily get to the point where you think what pleases God is for you to have faith, and that's true because he commands it and rebukes you if you don't have faith. But then you begin to think that if your child dies and you anointed him with oil and prayed over him, the reason he died is that you didn't have enough faith. And that's wrong. And it's wrong on many, many levels, but the principal level that it's wrong to think of faith as a meritorious work is that faith is a gift. You're commanded to have it, and it's a gift. Did you hear that? You're commanded to have it. As a matter of fact, you're rebuked if you don't have it, and it's a gift. And this is the way Scripture is all the time when it comes to God's... uh, you know, decrees, predestination, sovereignty, authority, whatever you want to refer to it. You know, we get to the point where we think that because God has all power and from eternity past has ordered everything for his glory, that that means that it's useless to pray because God's from eternity past decided who will be saved, who will not be saved, what's going to happen, and everything that happens happens as, as a function of his decrees, And he is omnipotent, and so you get into this thing where God becomes, uh, you know, you become a a theistic deist. You know, where hypothetically, you know, you believe in God's imminence, you believe that God is present, you believe that he's omnipresent, you believe that he is not uh, unable to be appealed to, that he he is uh, lovers of us and everything, but then you stop praying because you don't think your prayers are going to influence him because after all, in this very text, we see several times that the apostle Paul, mind you, is constantly asking God for permission to go to Rome and God keeps shutting him down. And yet the apostle Paul says he prays it, you know? 
And so we get to the point where we think of faith as a work that we can do and must do if we're going to be saved. And so, you know, it's like the, uh, it's like the uh, daisy, you know he, he pull, pull, you know, he loves me, he loves me not, he loves me. And instead of looking to him and his promises, we look to the quality and content of our faith. And that's wrong. Because faith is a gift. Okay? It's a gift. What does it say in Scripture about faith? It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. So faith is not what saves you. It's what God uses to save you. It is the instrument. For by grace you have been saved by faith. No, no, no. By grace, what? Come on, what? Through faith. So faith is the instrument that God uses to apply the work of Christ to you, but it is not meritorious, and it's not what gives you justification and sanctification and glorification. And that's, that's also true from this text. It says you've been saved through faith, and that, so it's pointing to faith, and that faith not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Faith is the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. You know, we just don't get it how much God hates us taking glory to ourselves. You know, you look at the church today, both Roman Catholic and Protestant, and it's utterly disgusting how much seeking of their own glory there is in the leadership of the church today. It's obvious in Rome, you know, because they all wear red robes, all the cardinals, you know. You know, they got the Sistine Chapel, they got the Michelangelo, they got the, the buildings, the cathedrals, <laughs> you know. All, of course, to the glory of God. But listen, we're no different in Protestantism. You know, we have, I'm not going to go into it, I'm tired of it. But it says this. Not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. There is a section in the book on fatherhood that we published where there's a chapter on God's jealousy, and God is jealous for his own glory. And that's the reason that families must not exist, to pump up the ego of fathers. And you see this so often in, in conservative Christian families where you know, the wife talks adoringly of her husband. It's just a bunch of bunk. It's a bunch of bunk. There is no man who's just wonderful. You know, especially the man that the wife's going around talking to all the women about what a godly husband she has. Bunk. I mean, he might be godly, but if he is, he should shut his wife up. Seriously. We don't need any cults of glory to any man and certainly not in the church. You look at the Apostle Paul in these verses, and the last thing in the world that you come away from this with is a feeling that the Apostle Paul is trying to put himself above other people. I mean, do you guys see it in, in the text? It's so obvious. For by grace you've been saved through faith and faith, not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast, okay? And then it says, for we are his workmanship. <laughs> and so listen, 
If you don't have faith, and if you're fearful, you plead with God to give you faith. That's what you do. When God has something that you need, and he says it's a gift, what should you do? If you want ice cream, what do you do? Mom, Dad, can I have some ice cream? So you ask God for faith. Plead with God. I will speak as, as a father and tell you that when my oldest son reached uh, adolescence, I was petrified about what I was going to be as a dad. I just, and I just pleaded with Tim Wagner to pray for me. I didn't have any idea what to do. And, and so many of you will recognize, you know what I began to do? I only knew how to do one thing. So what did I do? Well, you, you all know it. I just began to hug him. I don't know what to do except to touch people I love. You know, it's like, I don't know what to say to you and I don't know how to help you, but I love you, so I'm going to hug you. And of course, you know what it's like to hug a teenage man. <laughs> you know? We ask God for faith. And it is such joy to know that God gives good gifts to those that seek him. He says that he loves to give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. Now, why would they proclaim the faith of the Roman Christians to the whole world? Well, imagine that there were, hypothetical construct here, imagine that there were a church of faithful and obedient Christians under the nose of Congress, the Pentagon, the White House, the Smithsonian, Georgetown University, and the Supreme Court of the United States of America. That would be something worth talking about. And this is Rome. And Rome is the capital city of the evil Roman Empire. So this was a root out of dry ground. I remember when Chuck Colson confessed faith in Jesus Christ. He had been Nixon's hatchet man. Real politic, you know. He was, he was b -b 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 bad to the bone. And he became a Christian. He prosecuted for crimes connected with Watergate. Then he wrote a book called Born Again. And I have to admit when I began to read the book that I was skeptical. You know, can anything good come from Nazareth? Can anything good come from Washington, D.C.? You know, can any politician ever say anything truthful? You know, and I began to read this book, and immediately I realized that the Holy Spirit had come on the hatchet man, and that God had done a wonderful work in his life. And if you've ever read that book, you should read it. It's just like what it, the news would have been among the people of God. When Chuck Colson became a Christian, one of the things I remember about the book is that, uh, I think it was Al Qui, but there were, a, there were a group of men in positions of power who had Bible studies and prayed with him. And I remember one of them offering, when he was convicted of his crimes, I remember one of them offering to go to prison for him. And my heart beat so fast. I was so moved by that to think that there was somebody in this world who, who loved with the love of Jesus. And so I've given that book out. Typically, you don't want me to give you that book. 
And the, the reason is I typically will give that book to men who are very proud so that they can see the miracle of a man humbling, of God humbling a man. And this is why the faith of the, of the, uh, of the Romans and the Roman church was proclaimed all over the world. It was an unbelievable thing that here, under the emperor, in decadent Rome, For God, verse 9, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of the Son. Now, that's a parenthetical statement. Whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of the Son. So he's defining the God that he's speaking of. It is the only true God. And I'm his slave. I serve him. Okay? God, whom I serve in the preaching of the that God, okay, is my witness. Now, what is this? This is an oath. This is a vow. Well, an oath. This is calling down God to be a witness to us. And so there are places for oaths. The Anabaptists at the time of the Reformation said there should never be any oath. And so Calvin on this text says there should be oaths. Make them few and make them count. So here's the Apostle Paul saying something that Jesus says not to say. Jesus says, don't swear by anything. And here the Apostle Paul does it. And so what is the reason that he's swearing? Calling down God as a witness of the truthfulness of what he's saying. Why? What's so important that he would do that? Well, look. For God is my witness as to, God will tell you, I'm telling the truth concerning as to how unceasingly I make mention of you. Now that's weird. Why would the Apostle Paul feel the need to call down God as a witness to the truthfulness of the fact that he prays all the time for the Romans? Doesn't that seem weird? The reason is the Romans were not the fruit of his labors. The Apostle Paul had not planted the church in Rome. And you can imagine that if you're wealthy and you're in the capital of Rome and you're sophisticated and smart and, you know, you're in the capital and, you know, how, you, know, the, you, know the, you know, the unbelievable pride of people from Manhattan, preachers, you know. And the financial people, you know, the mergers and acquisitions lawyers, you know, right? You all know. And then the unbelievable pride of people who are from, you know, Bloomington. I mean, what do we think of Purdue people? I'm sorry, those of you that are from Purdue. But I mean, Purdue was created so Bloomington could look down. And then Purdue people, who do they look? I mean, everybody has this pecking order. And so the Romans were way high. And the Apostle Paul says, I call God as my witness that I never stop mentioning you. What? In my prayers. 
So the Apostle Paul is saying to them, I pray for you. God is my witness. I never stop praying for you. And it's really unbelievable. I don't pray for you the way I should, and you love me. The Romans didn't love Paul. He wasn't their father. He wasn't the doula or the midwife that God had used to bring them to birth. And yet the Apostle Paul says he never stops praying for the Romans. And you can imagine that the Romans would be cynical and they'd think, yeah, yeah, he tells everybody that, you know. I'm praying for you. You know how many times you've lied? You know, I'm praying for you. Yeah, right. And so he says, God is my witness. They wouldn't know because nobody knows who you pray for. But he says, God is my witness that I pray for you. Unceasingly, I make mention of you. And then, verse 11, for I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established. So the Apostle Paul didn't just pray for them, but what he prayed for them is that he would be able to get to them, he'd be able to show up there, and that he'd be able to give to them some spiritual gift to you that you may be established. So the Apostle Paul had the gifting that was necessary to establish the faith of the Christians. And he's still doing it with us. It's so sweet. You know, through his letters, he still establishes our faith. He wanted to get there to establish their faith. They needed improvement. And, you know, a letter just doesn't cut it compared to being there in person. And so he says, I long to see you that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established. That is, so he's going to clarify what he just said here. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. Now, this is mutuality. Mutuality is a very overworked term today, but here it's true. And this, again, is a shocker. It's a shocker that he prays unceasingly for Christians that he's never been among. And it's a shocker that he says that he's looking forward to them strengthening his faith. So if I were to ask you, if the Apostle Paul were writing to you, and he said to you that he wants to strengthen your faith, and all of us would go, yep, 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 I need the Apostle Paul to, 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 to strengthen my faith. I need him to help me be established in the faith, right? None of us have a problem with that, right? And then he says, so that you can establish my faith. And all of us are going to go, what? We're going to go, yeah, right, Paul. You know, how am I going to establish your faith? How do I establish your faith? So here's the question for you. What gift do you have to establish the Apostle Paul's faith? Because he's depending on you doing that to him. What gift do you have? Now, we're not talking about sentimental Christmas Eve, the gift of the Magi. Okay, we're talking the Apostle Paul. He's going to show up. He doesn't have good eyesight. He's short. He's not much to look at. Scrawny, probably. And he needs something for you, from you. So what do you have to give the Apostle Paul? What do you have to give him? Margaret? 
Allie? Christian, what do you have to give him? And notice I'm not asking what you have to give me. I'm asking what you have to give the Apostle Paul, because you're just like the people that were in Rome. And the Apostle Paul says that he looks forward to coming to them because he wants to be built up in his faith by them. So what is it that you have to give him? One of the things that we often do, pastors and elders, when we're talking to fathers, and sometimes mothers also, is impress upon them the importance of them training their children to give them good gifts. Because most parents don't think in terms of what they should be getting from their children. And so they don't teach their children to give them what they should be getting. They think it's a one-way street. We give and we shouldn't get anything from them. But you have an obligation as children. Those of you who are children, Ellie, are you listening? You have an obligation to give good gifts to your father and your mother. Now, how do you give them good gifts? Well, the most obvious thing is by obedience and honor, right? Respect. It warms the cockles of every parent's heart when their child says, yes, mommy, or yes, daddy. But it's so much more than that. If, if our child says, yes, daddy, doesn't warm anybody cockles of anybody's heart. Yes, daddy. How about, yes, daddy. Eh, it's getting warm. But boy, they smile at you when they say yes, daddy. And so one of the principal things you children owe your parents is gratitude. Because it's a pain in the rear for them to put up with you. Is this news to some of you? You think that the, the, you think that the moon hangs on you? You know, for heaven's sakes, even John F. Kennedy knew it. Ask not what your mother can do for you, but rather ask what you can do for your mother. Ask not what your deacons can do for you, but rather ask what you can do for your deacons. Ask not what the Apostle Paul can do for you, but ask what you can do for the Apostle Paul. Now, I'm not saying this because I don't want to change your diaper, to burp you, to clothe you, to wash you, which is what pastors do, and that's, that's not an exaggeration. I love doing that. I'm saying this because the nursery coordinator can't get you women to work in the nursery. Do you see this? You want to know what you can do for the nursery coordinator? You can just simply say yes. It's real simple. Ask not what the nursery coordinator can do for you, but ask what you can do for the nursery coordinator. <laughs> now, I could go on and on about this. What about the custodian? Here's an idea. If you're there at that certain place in this building where you do such and such, 
and you make a mess, clean it up. Elizabeth Elliot was here once, and they saw her cleaning the women's washroom. She was cleaning it. And this is what the Apostle Paul would be like. The Apostle Paul would clean the washroom. If you went in the washroom, the Apostle Paul was there, you would have found him cleaning it up. And not just his mess, but other people's mess. Here's another thing. You train your children when a man preaches to them to go to them following the service and thank them. Don't ask what the Titus 2 women, the older women of this church, can do for you. You ask what you can do for the older women of this church. Please, okay? I'm not saying this out of bitterness. This is, a, this is, a, this is an absolutely wonderful congregation, okay? I thank God for this congregation. I mean, you really are, right? We, those of us who are pastors and elders here and deacons, we know. But it's in the text And the text says the Apostle Paul is looking for what he can get from the Romans. And so this is a wonderful statement of the fact that God has put in the church gifts that every single person has. There is a gift in every single person here that this church needs in order to not get sick and die. And if you don't give that gift to this church, you will answer for it because God doesn't give gifts for you to feel superior to people. I know that's a shock to some of you. (laughs) <laughs> All right, now we have, uh, <laughs> we, we're out of time, so I have to end. And I want to end. <laughs> I really do. It says in verse 14 and 15, I'm under obligation. What is he under obligation? He's under obligation to use his gifts for the building up of the church. I have a debt to pay. I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel. He's under obligation to preach the gospel, all right? And who, to whom? He says, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. Now, I know it's weird, but I'm going to end on, on this note. I get very tired of commentaries written in the last century, because at this point, in the commentaries, they go into this long, long discussion of what he means by, come on, what do you think? Foolish. Who's he calling foolish? You know? And they don't say that. What they say is now in the construction here, it's actually not as obvious as you stupid people think it is. Because in parallel construction, you've got the Greeks and the barbarians, and you've got the wise, and you've got the foolish. But don't make the mistake of thinking that it's the barbarians that are foolish. Oh, no. So one of the modern commentators says, no, no, no. The Apostle Paul knew that among the barbarians, there were people who were wise. And so he couldn't have meant that the barbarians were the ones that were foolish. But look, Greeks, barbarians, the wise, and the foolish— And guess what? The word barbarian is a dismissive term in Greek that's onomatopoetic. And that means it sounds like what they think of the barbarians. And so it's a word that is is like cacophony. It's a word that shows that the barbarians were not civilized in the way they talk. It's the way a gay Frenchman would look down at a German. You know, because the Frenchman's like... 
And the Germans like, baka, baka, boah. Right? Right? And, and, and so the word barbarian indicates the, 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 the disgust which Romans and Greeks look down on people not from Greece and Rome. So it's not a good term. It's Greeks and barbarians, and it's the wise and the foolish. And so the barbarians are looked down on, and so are the foolish. But oh no, some of the barbarians were wise and some of the Greeks were foolish, so it can't be a parallel construction with this and this and this and this going together. Oh no, no, no. The Apostle Paul wasn't so stupid and don't you be so stupid. So what does he do? What he does is he says, now we know some of the barbarians were actually wise. And then he says, he's rather referring to individuals. How does it help to refer to individuals if it's a categorical statement about fools? It's foolish people. They're called fools. You know, it's a group. It's not individuals. And if you assemble fools, it's a generalization about a certain group of people. And so who does he say are the foolish people? Well, what, because he's a scholar, what he says is people who are what? Uneducated. And what? Stupid. So he says, don't worry, it's not the barbarians that are foolish, it's uneducated people who are stupid. Now, how does it help to exchange barbarians for people that don't have degrees? I mean, it's just like, <laughs> look, get over being so worried about generalizations. Generally, barbarians were fools. And even if Paul wasn't saying that, that's what every Greek person thought. And so everybody knew what he was saying. And so can we please not force scripture into our thin-skinned, self-centered, self-pitying. The apostle Paul says, Greeks and barbarians, wise and fools. Can we let him say it? Okay. There, that's, aren't you glad I ended on that note? <laughs> that's the end of the sermon. <laughs> okay, let's come to the Lord's table.